All right, go ahead and open up to Romans 12. Dean got us started there last week. We're going to pick it up again. We're going to go back and start at the beginning, but first let's open in a word of prayer. God, we thank you that you are God. We just want to pause and reflect on that, that you are the creator, that you are the one that we owe our lives to, you are the one that we owe our salvation to, that you are the one who is eternal, you are the one who is without cause, you are the one who loves us and gave yourself up for us. God, help us to always keep in perspective who you are, who we are in light of you. God, we thank you that you have taken us, you have made us new, you have made us yours. Uh, pray that as we open up the book of Romans, you would give us insight into what it is that you had Paul write down for uh, the Romans in that first century, and that we would take and apply that to our lives today, that we would have a better understanding of who you are because of what Paul wrote down for us. Uh, God, we thank you for your inspired word. Pray that you would speak to us and uh, that we would have a, a day full of uh, hearts and minds that are focused on you, that you would be worshipped this morning uh, within us and within this body. God, thank you for the unity that we have. We pray that you would uh, continue to, to grow and develop that. pray this all in your name. Amen. <laughs> Alright, so Romans chapter 12. As I said, Dean got us started last week, uh, verses 1 through 3. We're going to go back and just to get a, a fuller picture of this section. We're going to look at that whole section. Um, and remember that Romans 12 is really a vital transition point in this whole letter that Paul is writing to these believers at Rome. The first 11 chapters, he was focused very highly on on doctrine and making sure that the Roman believers understood what it was that he was saying. And here in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God... And here he's clearly transitioning. Therefore, because of all these things that have taken place in these first 11 chapters, these mercies that are laid out in the first 11 chapters, uh, he's now going to transition from orthodoxy into orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is just uh, straight teaching. We recognize ortho from orthodontist, right? Trying to get your teeth straight. Or from orthopedic, trying to get your feet, feet straight. Um, and uh, doxy uh, most commonly is talking about glory or, or fame or honor in the Greek, but uh, there's a <clears throat> understanding of opinion or belief. So to have a straight belief, a straight understanding of what it is that God is saying. Uh, and then orthopraxy, again, is applying that straight teaching to straight practice. And so Paul here is making that transition uh, from orthodoxy from to orthopraxy, from straight doctrine to straight practice, just as he does in many of his letters. Most notably is probably Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians are very strict doctrine. And then he gets into, okay, well, what are we going to do with that doctrine? How are we going to apply that? Uh, what is the impact that it does have upon our life? And here is where this transition takes place in this book of Romans. It's very common in Paul's uh, style of writing. This is also a transition, um, as Dean pointed out last week, because of the shift of an audience. We go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. As we got into chapter 2, we started focusing a little bit more strongly on the Jew, and then uh, 
graduated and uh, we're talking about Paul, who is, after all, the apostle to the Gentiles and his ministry to the Gentiles. And then the last few chapters, we focus pretty heavily on Israel and the Jewish people in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then here, once again, we're shifting to the church, that Paul is now addressing the church. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of everything that's taken place in these first 11 chapters, um, and he gets into the, the practical aspect of his teaching. So let me just ask you guys, how would you summarize the first 11 chapters? If you had to put it into a short, pithy statement, what was it that Paul was trying to communicate and get across in his straight teaching, in the orthodoxy of the first 11 chapters? That the entire world is fallen under sin. Yeah. And that uh, salvation is Christ alone uh, as a work of God. Amen. Good. It's good. So starting off with our fallen state, right? And then gets into the fact that both Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith in Christ alone. Uh, and again, that is definitely boiling it down. Um, Paul wrote it out in 11 chapters for a reason. But if we're going to summarize it, I think that's a decent summary. And now we're going to get into the, the practical application. And as we read through the first couple of verses here, I want us to notice that all of the the yous that are in this passage, every time that Paul is addressing you, these yous are plural. They're not singular. And so there's definitely a reason to take and to apply these in a, a personal way, but we have to realize that he is talking to a body of believers, to a group of believers, um, to a church, right? And keep that in mind. So he starts off in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, or y'all, right, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present all of your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's important, to renew your mind. We focused on that quite a bit last week. I almost said last night, but it wasn't last night. It was last week. Um, how our mind need to be renewed. And again, we can go back to chapter one and shortly after that declaration that the gospel is both for Jews and Gentiles, he talks about how, um, we've been given over to a depraved mind. Uh, that is our, our natural state that we are all lost. And, uh, we seek after our own sin, our own selfishness and, Three times in that chapter talks about how God has given us over to a depraved mind. And so rather than being given over to that depraved mind, we need to be conformed and have our mind renewed. Uh, picking up in the middle of verse 2, so that for this purpose that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. <clears throat> in verse 3, for... Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So he tells us not to think more highly of himself than we ought to think, but how is it that we ought to think? How ought the believer to think? Correctly. All right. Good. Correctly. Humbly. Humbly. Okay. 
So yeah, that's the, the main thrust of what he's trying to get across, right? To, to be humbly. So not more highly than you ought to think. We have to have this mindset, this attitude of humility. This is a mindset that really precedes this transformation that we have in our minds. Uh, coming to Christ starts with humility. When Jesus was <clears throat> preaching his Sermon on the Mountain, uh, the first beatitude that he talked about was being poor in spirit, being humble, to be begging, to be realizing that we are empty, we are absolutely um, worthless apart from ourselves. That's where beggars are on the street, right? They've reached rock bottom and they realize, okay, well, I can't help myself. I can't uh, do the things that I need to do to provide for myself. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to beg somebody else. That's where we need to be as Christians, as as people before we become Christians. That's the first step. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To have that reverence, that respect, again, that humility and understanding, appreciation for where we are. That is the first uh, step in salvation, humility. Psalm 14.1 says that it is the, the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, because he hasn't reached that point of humility. He hasn't begun to fear God, and therefore he has no wisdom, no knowledge, according to uh, Christ. Um, can I get a few volunteers to read these different passages about humility? Who can I get to read Ephesians 4? All right, Dean's going to get Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Who's got Philippians 2, 3 and 4? Jerry? Colossians 3, 12 and 14. 12 through 14. Andy? And then James 4. Who's got James 4, 6 and 10? Brick. All right, these are all passages. Uh, the first three are Paul, again, different passages, uh, all speaking to the necessity for our humility. Go ahead, Dean. You said four or what? One and two, please. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another and love. All right, once again, that's in accordance with our calling as believers. All humility. Do not be conformed. <laughs> right? All right. Uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing in selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Amen. That should be the mark of a believer, right? Um, and it's kind of, we can get down a rabbit trail pretty quickly here, but uh, that's one of the first verses that we had our kids memorize before they were Christians. So I don't know <laughs> uh, how that all works out because they definitely weren't acting as Christians and they weren't Christians, but we were prodding them to act like Christians, even though they weren't. Um, it's a, a good verse for us to, to commit to memory and to practice, especially as we are professing believers. All right, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, as you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
All right. Thank you. Above all this, put on love. And again, throughout that section, we see Paul using language that talks about uh, actively, consciously making an effort to do this, to put off your old self and to put on uh, something that you do knowingly, willingly. We didn't just wake up and mindlessly get dressed and show up here. We had to actually think about, well, what am I doing? Um, We didn't step into our, our shirt sleeve, right? And put socks on our hands. We were conscious about it. We were aware of it. We need to be consciously and aware of the fact that we are putting on love and acting in humility as Christians. James 4, 6 and 10, please. 6 and 10? 6 to 10. Uh, Britt, Scott, James, 4, 6 and 10. So, if that's not motivation enough to humble ourselves, that God is opposed to the proud, uh, I don't know how else to, to motivate you. James definitely had this understanding of humility down that we need to have this mindset that was in Christ, just as Paul was talking about in Philippians 2. Uh, this is a mindset of humility that uh, we not think more highly than we ought to think. And again, that's the, the negative aspect of how we ought not to think. Not more highly, but as Jerry pointed out, we need to think correctly uh, with a, a sound judgment is how he puts it, or right-mindedly. Um, in Second Corinthians 5.13, he uses the phrase, same word, it's translated sound mind. Uh, it's translated sensible in Titus 2.6. So we need to have a, a sensible mind, a sound mind to think rightly and correctly about uh, who we are in Christ. So not more highly, definitely. We, we don't need to be proud about who we are, but we also need to realize that there is a sense in which we can be um, too down on ourselves. We don't want to embrace this humility to a, a sinful degree. We are, in fact, children of the Most High God, right? We have been adopted by Christ, by the blood of Christ. We are called children of God. We are called to serve his bride. And so we need to strike a correct balance of not being too proud, not being puffed up, but also realizing that we are in fact changed. We are redeemed. And First Peter 4 talks about how every Christian has been given a spiritual gift. And that's what he's about to get into here and how God has gifted his church so that we can serve one another, so that we can edify and build up and lift up the bride of Christ. And if we have a wrong mentality, if we're operating outside of a sound mind, then we are going to uh, neglect to operate that gift correctly. We're going to neglect to exercise that gift as we should. Uh, Any thoughts or questions to this point? Absolutely. One of those paradoxes of 
the Christian life, right? That God is our king, and yet he's our friend. <laughs> what, a, what a thought that uh, we are unworthy of anything save eternal death, and yet God has allowed us to be a part of his work in his body and his operation of the church and salvation to be used as tools to go out to share Christ with other people. It is indeed an anomaly. Uh, it's a, a paradox, as you said. All right. Um, later on in verse three, he says, first of all, not to think more highly of himself than he ought. And so here, notice he switches to the, the singular. So I talked about how going through here, he was talking in the plural. Uh, going back up to verse 3, he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, so again, speaking in the plural, to, to all of y'all, I say, um, not to think more highly of himself. And there he switches to singular. So each one of you guys within this larger group ought not to be proud or puffed up. Um, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but to think so as to have sound judgment, to think rightly, to think sensibly, as God has allotted to each, again, singular, each one, each individual, a measure of faith. And so this measure of faith isn't talking about saving faith, even though uh, God is the one who operates that saving faith within us, that we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses of sin. But God, uh, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. For it's by grace that you are saved. Uh, through faith, this is a gift of God. Um, it's not of yourself so that nobody can boast. So salvation is absolutely a gift of God. That saving faith is a gift of God. But this faith here isn't speaking of saving faith. Um, and actually there's uh, a little bit of... Um, disagreement as to what kind of faith it's talking about. So either God is giving us a, a special serving ability as each individual um, he is giving us the faith to serve others individually um, not walking in the flesh but walking according to the spirit or he's speaking of a, a single standard of a measure of common faith, that there is one body with which we are a part of, which we are identified of, and according to that common faith, each person is um, allotted a, a share in that, or that we, yeah, we are all a part of that one common faith, the Christian faith, uh, whatever the case, and, and there are aspects in which both of those things are true. Um, that we do get our, our strength from God and that we are a part of a whole, which really kind of fits the, uh, the context of what he's going to flow into here later. So both are true, but regardless of our understanding, what are the implications of this faith being allotted to us by God? What should we draw out and understand from that aspect, that reality that God is the one who allots to each this faith? Come on, why is that important? That God allots us this faith. There's a question why why does he allot us that faith? Why is it important that this is allotted to us by God? That's when we can get faith. We can't get it of our own. 
given to us by God, and that's it's drawing that we can then be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of our sins. Yeah, again, it's not saving faith he's talking about. Um, so yeah, you would be right in that, that we don't save ourselves, right? right. But in the same way that we don't save ourselves, we don't drum up uh, this kind of faith or this kind of um, ability, I guess, to uh, partake. And because it's allotted to us, we have no ability to boast in it. Again, going back to Ephesians 2, that we can't boast in it. God is the one who is at work. God is the one who grants us this. It is a gift from God given to us by him. Um, Going back up to the end of chapter 11, verse 36, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so he is the one who is allotting us uh, this measure of faith. Um, It is coming from him. And yet we are still responsible for exercising our gifts in this faith that has been given to us, that has been allotted to us. Uh, There is a balance for sure, but it comes from God. Yeah, Andy. Because it's necessary though we're Christians, we do have that flesh that we fight with. In order for there to be unity in the body, there has to be humility and humbleness. Yeah. Each other. It's it's a necessary component. Can't have a bunch of high-strung, arrogant people working together. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and that's really what he's laying the groundwork for here in the first three verses. That we need to first be humble, and then he's going to get into the the unity of the body. Jeremy. So the the two interpretive options that you shared about what the measure of faith is. The first one is like the individual unction or energy that we have for service in the church, I think is how I understood that. Yes, the, the ability to exercise our gifts. And then what was the second one? Could you nutshell that one again? Um, that we are a part of the faith, uh, the bigger faith of the Christian uh, faith, I guess. But that's not, that's distinguished from saving faith. Yes. We that we are serving faith? a part of the body. <laughs> I don't think I'm understanding the differences between the, the three options there, even though it's, it's probably not important. I'm just curious as to what that view is actually trying to say that's different from saving faith or serving faith. Um, so that God has allotted to each one a, a measure or a, a portion that he has given us uh Kind of like baptism, we are baptized into the church, and I know that's really closely associated with saving faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we are a part of this bigger body, that we are a part of the the group of believers of the faith. And we'll get into in a moment here down in uh, verse six. I think that's um, there's question there about that faith as well, and I think that's talking about that same kind of uh, general faith, the, the Christian faith there. So yeah, uh, we'll get there in a second. But um, once again, there's a balance that God is the one who gives us this faith. Um, he's the one who gives us our gifts and our ability, and he's the one who puts us into his body and uh, gives each member, each person, uh, a role within the body, but we still have a, a responsibility. So even though um, I've been 
given the responsibility to teach here, that is still a, a responsibility. I can't shirk my responsibility to uh, to prep or to to go through and study, uh, even though God is the one who's going to allow me to, to teach. Um, and yet, in the same respect, no matter how much I prepare or study um, to, say, sing, you probably shouldn't give me a microphone and expect me to sing well, expect me to sound good. And so as we get into the different gifts and um, the spiritual gifts, as we'll name them here later on, um, we need to realize that each gift comes from God. He gives to, to each one proportionally. So, yeah, I think we'll move on from that point. But, again, as you mentioned, Andy, we need to remember, going into verse 4 and following, that the connection between verses 3 and 4 is that we need to embrace this humility. We need to uh, not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So, going into verse 4, keep that humility in mind. For, in verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So in verse 4, we have the, the illustration of the human body. He's talking about um, how we have different parts of our body. We have our hands and our feet and our legs and our eyes, and all these have different functions. And then verse 5 is the application of the church. So 4 is the illustration, 5 is the application. Uh, 5 is talking about um, how the church relates to the body and how we have many parts within the church that makes up the one whole church. So uh, this is a, a common picture within Scripture. Why does Scripture, you think, often use the the body as a picture, as an image of the church? What are some of the principles? What are some of the, the implications of the church being identified as a body? The parts are all very, very, very dependent on each other. Okay, good. What else? It's an easy way to relate it to men and women because we all have a body so yeah. we know when things hurt and don't function and when it does function well and that's, that's really easy to relate it okay good any other thoughts why a body and the different aspects of the body that are often pointed out in scripture pretty, pretty familiar with the illustration uh huh Okay, good. And that's his main point, the diversity and unity, right? That there is great difference within the church, just as there is great difference within the functionality and the purpose of the different body parts that we have that we are all so familiar with. Um, we all operate differently, don't we? And that's a good thing. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians, Paul gets into, well, if every body part were an eye, that would be helpful, that would be beneficial. Uh, it is good that we have 
diversity amongst the the unity of the one body of Christ. And <clears throat> we don't give ourselves life or make ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And the head is Christ. There's a hierarchy also. Yeah. There are many different aspects that uh, Paul really likes to delve into in different passages. But yeah, that's a good one. And then uh, within this unity and diversity that we have within this unity. Like we always have to be careful not to mistake unity for uniformity, right? That we don't always look and operate the same. But there are some things that we ought to be uniform in, that we ought to be the same in. What are those things that we ought to be uniform in as the body of Christ? Our confession. All right. Yeah. Some of them, right? This is where Jeremy's chart comes into she said major. 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 Yeah, I didn't hear the major. Good. I just heard doctors. I already have bad hearing, and I'm all clogged up, so my ears are popping and doing weird things. So. Column one. Huh? Column one. Yes, column one stuff. Yes. Those things we must have uniformity in, right? If we don't, then we are not a part of this body. That's some kind of... Uh, cancerous growth that needs to be cut off and recognized as not a part of our body. Um, but there are other aspects that we need to realize, okay, well, we don't need to be uniform in these things. We can still be a part of the body. We can still have unity despite these other secondary issues. And that's where a lot of churches really go off into the weeds and get into all kinds of trouble because they expect uniformity in things and places where we ought not to expect uniformity. And uh, Jerry, I think you mentioned the fact that all these, that this concept of the body um, really draws out the fact that we are all dependent upon each other. I don't remember how you said it. We were like really, really ultra dependent upon each other. We ought to be. and in our world, we have this idea, this concept that inter- interdependency is a bad thing. But interdependency is not a bad word. We need to realize that. We need to embrace that, that God has made us and designed us as a church, just as he has designed our bodies to be interdependent and interrelated to one another. That it is God who works through his church. And if we were to say that we don't need each other, if we don't need a part of the body, a part of the church, that is the the epitome of pride. And that's why uh, humility has to precede these things, to realize that we are interdependent upon one another. That is a, a good thing. And then you also mentioned that when something in your body is not working we we realize that and we we feel that the fact that i can't hear renee say uh certain doctrines right or major doctrines um i can feel that because my ear is not functioning properly um or rex with your wife and her one leg not working properly you've been feeling the the effects of that for months and we have that same reality within the body of Christ that when one member is not uh, operating as they should or when one member is hurting, we all hurt with it. When one member is mourning, we all mourn with it or we all rejoice with it. Uh, we are interdependent, and that is a good thing. We can feel the, the pain and share the joys with one another. 
And then we also see this idea of uh, giving and receiving, that it is good to give, it is good to uh, realize that we have this relationship with one another where we are dependent upon one another. If I need to get somewhere, I'm dependent on my feet to, to get me there. And that's a, a good thing. It's a good thing for us to give to the other members of the body. It's also a good thing for us to receive from other members of the body. And different people have struggles at different points to uh, take the gifts that God has given them and to share that with others. Or some of us have a harder time being able to allow the, the rest of God's body to share with us. Both are issues within the church. Both are representative of pride and not being conformed, uh, but being conformed to the world rather than being renewed in our mind and uh, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And so we need to, once again, guard against that and realize that we are one body. We all uh, hurt together. Any other thoughts or questions on that? Before we move on to verse 6. All right. Um, we have an image here. It's going to throw up. There it is. So we have several lists of spiritual gifts within Scripture. And we are here, obviously, Romans 12. We're going to uh, step into this list shortly. But we also have this list in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Uh, a lot of the same things are repeated in that chapter. And then Ephesians 4, 11. Then there's also mention of it a little bit in First Peter 4. Uh, Peter kind of separates it into speaking gifts and serving gifts. Uh, and we went over this a uh, lot more in depth when we were going through First Corinthians. So we're not going to get too in depth into the different aspects of the gifts. But um, we really need to remember the, the thrust of the, the context leading up to this and what Paul's purpose is. He's talking about this unity that we have within the body. And how all these different gifts are meant to work together to serve one another. And here in verse 6, I'll go ahead and leave that up there for probably the rest of the class. But here in verse 6, Paul says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Um, I'm rooting out of the, the NASB, and I really like my NASB, but not so much in this verse. Um, you'll see, if you also are reading in NASB, that uh, each of us is to exercise them accordingly is in italics. That's because it's uh, supplied there. It's given to us by the, the translators. It's not in the original. And I had a hard time trying to figure out why they supplied that, where they were getting that concept or that idea from. In the ESV, they they do the same thing. They put, let us use them, and they supply that. And I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Um, are you using the NIV there, Rex? I are. You are. All right. Um, will you read verse 6 for us in the NIV? We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Huh. That one does it too a little bit. The NIV I was looking at, um, I couldn't see the the let him use it aspect in there. Um, there are some translations that don't have that. And again, that's not a, a bad aspect to have in there, but I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Um, 
But, yeah, if you see italic words in your Bible, those are supplied. And then uh, later on in the verse, this is the other uh, area where we see a difference in understanding of faith that I was talking about. It says, if prophecy according to the portion of his faith. And uh, that is pretty interpretive in that verse to say that it is his faith. Um, that again would be to understand it as the faith that God has given him to exercise his gift. But um, it literally says the faith. And that would once again be in relation to the, the common faith that we have as Christians. So in proportion to the faith, the Christian faith, let us exercise our gifts accordingly. And uh, once again, we see that these are gifts, which should remind us again that we have no reason to boast. Somebody have a question? Uh, both the uh, King James and New King James don't use the let us use them language. Yeah. And uh, the Christian Standard Bible and Holman Christian Standard, they don't use that language either. But it seems like all the other ones do. So. Yeah. I'm not sure where it comes from. but And the... Uh, iteration of NIV I was looking at must be different from Rex's so I thought we'd have more well, I knew we'd have more of a chance of having an NIV in here than a King James but yeah that is uh, a difference that you might see in your different Bibles um, but again not that we shouldn't use them they have been given to us to use right we see that in 1 Corinthians 12 um, that is a purpose of these gifts that we would use them for one another all right so um we need to realize, again, going back, that any effective use of our gifts must be preceded by embracing humility. That is vital and important to understanding what Paul is getting at as he gives these different uh, gifts that he's talking about. That uh, humility must be embraced before we can effectively use these gifts. And in verse 6, the first one that he mentions is prophecy. And... Uh, there are a lot of people who want to take and understand this as just preaching or proclaiming um, because that kind of fits in with uh, our, our certain stripe of Christianity that we are cessationists. We think that there are certain gifts that have ceased, but I have a hard time seeing that in here that Paul here is just talking about uh, foretelling and not foretelling. When we look at prophecy in this word throughout all scripture, there are two aspects of prophecy that you would proclaim, you would preach, but also that you would tell the future what is going to happen. And we got into this once again in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 quite a bit. But I think this is a, a gift that has ceased and we should seek to exercise this gift of prophecy. But even though this is a gift that has ceased, uh, you and I still benefit from it, don't we? We're sitting here looking at uh, God's prophetic word made more true that he has given to us and preserved for us from those who did faithfully exercise this gift in relation to the faith, the the greater faith of the Christian faith. And they did so to the benefit of the entire church, not just to the church that was around then, but even to us today that it has been preserved for us today because of their faithfulness in exercising this gift of prophecy. Uh, in verse 7, he brings up this gift of service. He says, if service, then in his serving. And this uh, 
as we'll see up here, I think it relates to this gift here, First Corinthians 12:28. This gift of helps um, to want to and have a desire to to serve and to help others. And this has a wide variety of applications within the church. To once again go back to what Paul said in Philippians 2:3 that we would consider others as more important than ourselves. These people who have this gift of service, this gift of helps, really grasp onto it. Uh, understand that concept that they want to serve others and that the other parts of the body are their priority. Um, the people who come in mobile lawns and all you guys, when you serve in these little, uh, often not recognized ways, uh, these are serving gifts. And there are some that God has given to the church who are particularly uh, blessed to be able to serve in this way. Uh, they want to bless. They are very helpful, and there is no lack of need for those who have this gift or a desire to serve and help uh, to really benefit and add to the uh, the growth of the the health of the church. So they're the and only people who need the help. They're the only ones. Yes. So <laughs> no. Uh, as we'll point out here in a little bit, I don't think that these gifts are given so uh, strictly. We can see even from the variety of these different gifts that uh, they do vary. They are not identical to one another. These gifts, these lists are not comprehensive. I think they're represent representative of different qualities of traits that God has given to the individuals within his church so that they can go out, they can bless. Um, I think of different uh, positions on a, a team. I'm a football guy, so I like football, and I know that not all quarterbacks are the same, even though they have roughly the same job. They don't all operate the same. All running backs aren't operating in the same kind of way or fashion, um, but some running backs might be more apt to receiving. They'll break out of the backfield, and they'll receive a ball. Some of them are going to uh, juke and, and run around. They're squirrely, right? And then Others were, are more downhill runners, like uh, Jerome Metis, the bus, right? He would just lower his shoulder and he'd run right through people. They're not all the same. In the same way, not all teachers are designed the, the same. Not all people who serve are going to serve in the same way. Not all people who exercise the gift of mercy are going to do so in the same way. And I like how John MacArthur describes it. He talks about uh, gifts as colors on a, a painter's uh, palette and how he'll take different colors and he'll kind of mix them together and he'll come up with a, a unique kind of hue and I think that's really kind of how these gifts are that maybe somebody will be, they'll have 20% of this gift and 30% of this gift, 40% of this gift and we are all unique in the body so not everybody is going to uh, and we, we shouldn't seek to kind of pigeonhole ourselves and look for a mold and say well, I have just this gift. I am just a, a teacher. I just have mercy or I just have whatever. God has made you unique for the church and specifically for this local church to plug you in so that you ought to serve in the way that um, he has called you and designed you to serve. Just get out there and, and serve. and You will be exercising your gift. Don't get so caught up in what is my gift. It's not all about you. Yeah. As he's talking about the proportion of the too, I mean, our, our list here, except for prophecy, I mean, we're all called to do those to an aspect, serve, 
teach, even if we're just teaching our spouses or our children, uh, we're all called to encourage one another. Uh, we're all called to give, lead in one way or another, have mercy. It's just, you know, God gives us proportional to those. So where someone might have a huge heart to serve, and that's what they want to do to help the body where the other person uh, has a huge heart to give or um, has a huge heart to, to be merciful and, and um, stuff like that. So yep. they're, they're all aspects that everyone has. It's just how much of, of what is is what the Holy Spirit's given us to be uh, more driven towards and excited about than we would do according to the proportion of our faith. Amen. Good. So on the church cleaning day in a couple weeks, it's not just the people with the service. The ones that are good at exhortation should encourage the rest of them. I'll stay in the party. There you go. That's right. Clean the job. Amen. All right, let's jump back in at the the end of verse seven, I think. Yep. Uh, that's where it gets into teaching. Uh, this is one that is represented in all the lists, maybe not by name, but uh, definitely represented. Uh, it's a distinguishing mark of an elder. Uh, in First Timothy 3, elders must be apt and able to teach. Um, let's turn to Ephesians. Let's look at that other list real quick in Ephesians chapter 4. <coughs> Ephesians 4.11 says that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And so that's really what we see with all the gifts, that they are all for the building up of the body. But uh, teachers specifically are called for equipping the saints for the work of service. So we see how it's kind of cyclic cyclical how teachers are to just as we were kind of joking around about uh encourage others to serve and to give and to exercise their gifts for the building up of the body uh paul exhorts timothy in uh second timothy 2 to to uh he says just as i have entrusted this to you you need to take and teach to others who will in turn teach it to others it's a a crazy kind of history that we have a, a long beautiful heritage that we have as believers that we are being taught this truth that has been taught to others um, all the way back to the first century uh, even before that in the the old testament um, and it's really dependent upon the the teaching of the generation that came before us and as dean pointed out this is not always done in a, a formal setting not always behind a, a pulpit or a podium but we we teach all the time in our daily lives we are to teach our families we are to teach uh in a, a myriad of number of ways we are not excluded and excused from teaching just because uh we might not consider ourselves to be teachers this is something that we are all called to do uh along with the rest of the gifts uh, in verse 8, he moves on to exhortation. He who exhorts is to do so in his exhortation. Um, what do you have there, Rex? I'm not so sure I should ask you now that I have a different NIV version, but <laughs> what do you have there for exhortation at the beginning of verse 8? Yes, sir. 12 8, yep. Just the first word. <laughs> All right. 
If it is encouraging, let him encourage. Right. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. Are you supposed to put part of it? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> All right. So NIV uh, has that as encourage. And so um, it's also translated as correct or to console, to comfort. Uh, which is the the most common way that it's used to comfort and then to encourage. And I think in our, at least in our culture, we have two very nuanced terms here that uh, have both a, a positive and a negative connotation in our mind. We think exhort, for me at least, I think, okay, well, that has kind of a negative connotation. I think encourage, oh, that's more positive. Uh, but it's one word that um, can really should be understood in both ways to encourage, to exhort, to correct. And we should understand that in a good way. Looking through Hebrews 12, that uh, correction is a good thing, right? Uh, God chastens those who are legitimately his. He corrects those and encourages those. Uh, This is a word that's used of Barnabas in Acts 4.36, that he was a son of encouragement or a son of exhortation. Uh, So it's a good thing to be exhorted, to be encouraged. Uh, keeping your finger in Romans, let's turn to Second Corinthians one. Second Corinthians one. We see this word used in verse five, and also six and seven. So I'll read those verses. For just as the suffering sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And then. You could look down and see comfort used several times in those following verses, too. Uh, that's the same word for exhortation. Uh, jump forward to chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8. We'll see this word used here in 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 8, 3. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord... Bringing, begging us with much urging, that's our, our word for encouraging or for exhorting, for the favor and participation in the support of the saints. So don't think of uh, exhortation or urging in such a negative aspect because it's used as comforting or encouraging in, in many respects. Um, and we see there that these believers, these Corinthians, were giving this gift that we talked about last week in our sermon. And that leads us right into the the next gift that Paul brings out back in Romans 12, uh, the gift of giving. So he who gives is to do so with liberality. And there's not much better example than uh, these Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians 8, giving with liberality. Uh, the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, talks about how God loves a cheerful giver. That's how we are to give in uh, relation to this gift. This gift isn't talking about one who is financially blessed and able to give because they have a lot of money. This is talking about one who has been given a heart to give. They have a desire to give. They can give without missing their their gift. Um, not always financial, but to have this uh, loving, selfless caring ability to freely give what God has given to them. Just like the the woman that Jesus talked about who had the, the two mites, who had this gift of giving. I think it's closely related with this gift of faith to be able to trust in God so much that you can just get rid of it and give it freely. So the anti-order. Yes, sir. 
the next one that he mentions is he who leads is to lead with diligence. This is speaking of one who has charge over, one who is able to manage. This is the same word that we read of in First Timothy one or First Timothy three, talking about how elders and deacons are to be able to manage their own households well, so that they can manage the church. Uh, one who is able to rule. First Timothy five seventeen, same word where we see that the elder who rules well is a worthy of of double honor. Um, speaks of one who governs or pilots a ship. One who does. Uh, get out there and say, hey, this needs to happen, so everybody show up for cleaning day, right? One who is able to lead and govern and rule well. And then lastly, we oh, see hey, that... Real quick, uh, one of my favorite quotes about leading from Bodhi Bakum, uh says, if you think you're a leader and no one's following you, then you're just walking around. <laughs> so, uh, so I think part of that gift of leadership is that people follow Yes. To not just that you think you are a leader, but that you actually are a leader. It's in the word, lead. Amen. Yeah. All right. And then he closes it out with, uh, he who shows mercy is to do so with cheerfulness. This is to show compassion, to show kindness, to show pity to those who are hurting, to those who are in need. Uh, we have a, a special need for those who have this gift of mercy because we have a lot of people who are in need of mercy. <clears throat> I've been reminded by several people this week uh, that I need to be merciful and showing compassion, which is good because I need people to remind me of that because I'm not naturally bent that way. Um, We need people who have mercy. And so just wrapping up and looking at this whole passage as a whole, uh, again, we need to realize that any effective use of our gifts has to be preceded by embracing humility. If we don't embrace humility, then we're not going to be able to use and exercise these gifts properly, um, we're going to to mess it up. If we seek to exercise these gifts in pride in our flesh, and we are going to, one, bear no eternal fruit, 1 Corinthians 3, right? It's all going to be burned up. It's not going to have any lasting effect. And secondly, we're not going to edify the church if we are not doing this in the the right way in proportion to the faith that God has given us. if we're just serving out of obligation, first of all, it's pretty clear, I think, to most of us that, well, that guy doesn't want to be here. He's doing these things for the wrong motive. Uh, it's not going to be productive. Uh, people are going to oftentimes expect repayment when they're serving with the, the wrong motives without humility. Uh, if we're teaching and leading with the wrong motives, we are apt to be able to lead others astray. That is a, a big deal. Uh, That's why James tells us that not many of us ought to be teachers because uh, the condemnation is going to be greater for those who don't do it well, who lead people astray, who wound people. Uh, We're going to put ourselves in the the potential spot of having a a Christianity Today podcast written about us, right? Think of Mars Hill and that whole fiasco and how uh, he was not... Uh, allegedly leading and teaching with humility but with pride Uh, any proud exhortation that we might receive just results in frustration not any kind of repentance or comforting Uh, it's just it's hypocritical right think of Jesus talking about taking the plank out of your own eye before you point out the speck in your brother's eye all these gifts need to be preceded by humility um 
if we're not using our gifting in the church, if we're not doing it out of humility, then we are not doing church right. Uh, these gifts are for the church, for the building up of the church. They are vital to the church. Uh, reading through this, I was thinking about Revelation 3 and how Jesus was speaking to Ephesus, and he says uh, that your lampstand, your church, is apt to be removed. And I think that's where we end up if we start to exercise these gifts out of pride, not in the faith that God has given to us, and not out of humility, but with the wrong motives. Uh, it all goes back to humility and to building up and edifying the, the church of God. Again, we need to realize that God has made each one of us unique. So uh, if you are concerned about, well, what is your gift? How can you serve? Just go back and focus on those first three verses, uh, making sure that we are not conformed to this world. We are renewed in our mind, and we are uh, not thinking more highly of ourselves, but we are rather thinking rightly. We are having sound judgment as to what the church is, what our role is in the church, how we are to serve the church of God. This is a ministry that God has committed to us. That is a big deal. God has given each one of us a gift, a, a gifting and a, an ability to bless his church. And we need to use it and uh, to fulfill that gift so that we can build up the church. And lastly, I just want to read for us 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Uh, where Paul says, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Let us have that as our prayer, that we are to build up the church, we are to abound in it. This is something that we are to do, not for ourselves, but for the church, out of an abundance uh, for the bride of Christ that we have been blessed to be able to pour into and be a part of. Let's pray. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1412. God, we thank you for your bride and for your church and how you have given us your church to uh, encourage us, to build us up, to keep us on track, to uh, exhort us and correct us. God, we thank you that we are a part of that church and that we have been given your word, your Holy Spirit, that all of your word is God breathed so that we might use it for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. God, help us to be thoroughly equipped. Help us to thoroughly equip others. We thank you for your bride, for your love for her. Help us to honor you today. Amen.